Hello and welcome to Plotris. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're reading Tarnished Night by Beck McMaster. This was published in 2013 and is the 1.5th book in the London Steampunk series. And it is part of our Christmas novella Bonanza, which is, it's only going to be four novellas this, this December, but still, that's a lot of Christmas novellas. Um, it does fit into the Christmas novella because they talk about Christmas. I was gonna say it's tenuous. <laughs> it's tenuous. It, I mean, it is tenuous, but you know what? We started reading the London Steampunk series back in October as part of Christmas. It's part of Christmas as part of Halloween, and I thought, you know what? We should just continue this holiday thing going on with London Steampunk. So here's the Christmas novella. <laughs> Done. So, as an introduction, the book jacket. In the steam-fueled world of Victorian London, vampires, werewolves, and slasher gangs stalk the night, and a man made partly of metal is about to discover just how far he'll go to protect the woman he loves. After a vicious vampire attack left him struggling to leash the dark urges of the craving virus, John Rip Doolan thinks he's finally starting to master the darkness within. The only thing that threatens to shatter his hard-won control is Esme, his closest friend and the only woman he's ever wanted. If the stubborn beauty ever realized precisely what was going through his mind, their friendship would be ruined. Months. Esme has waited for Rip to recover and take her as his thrall, not daring to hope for more. Too afraid to put her heart on the line, she's devastated when Rip reveals that he never had any intentions of making her his. But when a savage gang of slashers start causing havoc in Whitechapel, Rip and Esme have no choice. They must face up to the depths of the passion that burns between them and forge a new relationship or risk losing each other. Forever. I have mixed feelings about this jacket. Same. I think in terms of the formula we've referred to where give us the two main characters and give us the conflict, like this actually works. The problem mm. is the conflict is stupid. The conflict is stupid, but also the, the other issue is that if you have not read any of the London Steampunk books, this is not going to make any sense. Oh, no, this is just garbled nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I was trying hard not to laugh. I was like, a man made partly of metal. Yeah, I was wondering which part. Devastated. She won't. He won't make her his thrall. Like, okay, what's a thrall? Like, I mean, and I said this, I think, about the first jacket, but I felt like the, the series as a whole, the jackets don't do a very good job of being introductions to the world. They really do assume prior knowledge, which, which with, with, the first book, with the first book especially is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. I will say, I think this is a straight-to-digital edition. I think you're not going to buy this or read it unless you have gotten an intro to the rest of the world. But even so, if you just happen to come across this as part of a Christmas novella anthology, you might be like, what? Well, and I al it also bothers me because we've complained with, like the worst thing about Beck McMaster and this series in particular to both of us is how wordy it can be. Mm -hmm. That, like... Some of these really needed an editor for brevity more than anything else. And so I would love to recommend a novella to someone as an intro into this world, just because it is like a more digestible 
entry point. There's right. nobody's not sure if this is going to be their thing. And anyone that I was like, oh, well, you can start here just to get a, like, sense. That jacket is going to be an immediate turnoff. Yeah. Well, you know, Lane, you just said you wanted a shorter jacket. Luckily for you, when we generated our random number out of 25, as we do for novellas, we came up with a very short number, three. So I what was a shorter book, not a shorter jacket, but sure. What was your three-word summary? Underworld, hierarchy, hijinks. I like it. What was yours? Uh, I went for, very straightforward here, sexy Christmas vampires. I reject the word Christmas in your summary. This is everything is happening during the Christmas season. They have a Christmas tree. They have a Christmas dinner. I think Christmas is a part of this book. We have a disagreement on this. Lane and I have we have disagreements sometimes. Lane is a much more of a Christmas person than I am. And she she does all the candy cane ratings for our Christmas novellas. But she rates them, she's like, she watches the Hallmark or the, the Netflix, or which, which one is the one? Which one did you tell me had the best Christmas shows? ABC Family that doesn't exist anymore. Oh, there you go. Today. There you go. So she really knows the, the, the of, you know, <laughs> so she can really judge. I just want read it once in a while. I'm like, oh, I want some Christmas stuff. So this this hit the Christmas spot for me, but spoiler, it did not hit the Christmas spot for Lane. No, I need saccharine. I need holly jolly Christmas. I need caroling. I need hot cocoa. I need gift wrapping. I need. It it is true that none of that exists in that in this book. And for all that Meg is right, there is a Christmas dinner and there is a tree. It's like in the compound. Yes. It's not something that like the two of them pay particular attention to other than like the tradition of gift giving. Yeah. Speaking of tropes, actually, and the compound, the compound where they live in really reminds me of like the all of the criminal hideouts that happen in these romance novels that look really shitty on the outside, but are really amazing on the inside. The two that immediately spring to mind to me are in worth any price. Remember? So that's one of the big ones. And then the other one that, that springs to mind, I don't think you've read it lane, but it's in Elizabeth Hoyt's uh, maiden lane series. Um, Not wicked intentions, scandalous desires, maybe someone with Mickey O'Connor. Anyway, same thing. Read that one, but I think Sarah McLean's um, series about the three siblings yes. who are illegitimate had some similar vibes with their yes. hideouts and their haunts. Exactly. So I would say that's trope number one is like the luxurious compound in the middle of squalor. Yes. And like, especially if like the antechambers are also not exactly lush. Yes. You have to really get in, a.k.a. really know the person. Exactly. To see their true exactly. nature. And why are they in the compound? Well, it's because Esme is the housekeeper mm-hmm. for the most feared denizen of the underworld, Blade. Right. And so Rip works for Blade. 
as an enforcer. So this is a sci-fi, paranormal, steampunk, alternate universe, Victorian era novel with blue bloods, which are vampires, and werewolves and men who are part machine. Yep. So Rip falls into the category at the beginning of the first book of human but part machine. Right, he's a mech. Right, Esme is just a, a down-on-her-luck human woman. Yeah. But at the end of the first book, obviously, spoiler for the first book, Rip is transformed into a vampire. Rip gets vamped. Which I believe the jacket says, too. So, like, we too late. Yeah. To this. Um, but so Rip and Esme are implied in the first book to have sort of had this long-term will-they-won't-they they that neither of them have really owned up to. And this book is sort of the culmination of that dynamic now that he's a vampire and she's sort of feels like she's out of time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's basic. That's the basic premise for this book. It's a, will they, won't they, they've been circling each other for years and now rip in addition to all of his other insecurities. Now he's a vampire and he doesn't feel like he can control his urges around Esme. Yeah, so apparently, so Esme used to give blood to the big bad vampire Megalude too, but now he only drinks from his wife. <laughs> but so Esme was planning on giving her blood to Rip, and the first night he turned, she did, and apparently he was so into it, he was like, never again, or I'm gonna sex murder her. <laughs> right. <laughs> so this falls into the, I can't for your own protection trope. But of course he doesn't say that to her. He doesn't say not. to her, your blood was incredible. It was such like a sexual turn on that I am actually afraid in this like newborn vampire phase I'm in that if I drunk from you or drink from you or whatever the tense is appropriate in this situation, I would actually like rip out your jugular vein and you would bleed to death in front of me. He just ignores her. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't. Look, it, it doesn't. The, the, this trope doesn't have to make sense. I mean, think about Hattie and Beast. He's did the same thing. He's just like, I'm dropping you by. Like, in, in whatever, it, it's not quite, I mean, it's not vampire. It's not, he wasn't like, I can't be with you because I will kill you. But there are so many where they're like, okay, they, they start getting close to someone and then someone makes a threat and they're like, I'm not dropping you. Yeah. And they don't, they can't tell them why. So in my opinion, it falls into that trope. Yeah, but I do think there's a, this is the sub trope when the person is actually afraid they are the the, the vampire subtrope? Well, vampire, werewolf, um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type disease where, like, they don't know what they do half the day. I don't know. But, like, it's one <laughs> thing to say being associated with me makes you a risk because other people might realize they can get to me through you Yeah. versus I am actually afraid I will hurt you. Versus, versus I will hurt you. It also falls into the, I grew up in an abusive household, and so I'm afraid that I will perpetuate the the uh, the abuse, the cycle. So that I've seen that in a few. That's not articulated super not in this here, one. but it's definitely implied. Yeah. The next trip I will leave to Lane, because I, I knew she would love it. Uh, the sex cabin in the city? Yeah. Yeah. So the only downside to this is... It's great, but it's also, I wanted it earlier. It happens at the end of the book, which on the one hand, you know I'm going to praise a sex scene after the conflict has been resolved. So like all around, 
faces. But it was very, very, very cute, but very at the end. And I do wish we'd seen a little bit more of the sex cabin earlier on, a la some of Lisa Cruz's best work. Yeah, well, there was. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. I, now, there is a sex cabin, but there's also a sex bathhouse. It's not a sex bathhouse. It's but just she, a bathhouse. Well, okay. Sexy bathhouse? They're alone in it, but that is not its purpose. That's not its purpose. That's it true. can only be a sex cabin or a sex bathhouse if, like, it was constructed just for the purposes of sex. Okay, that's fair. These are my rules, and I'm sticking to them. You know what? I am there for arbitrary rules. It's fine. Uh, so as you probably guessed from the I can't for your own protection, we have a hero kind of hates himself. He's just not good enough for the heroine. So he's got to overcome that to be with her. And to continue perpetuating the misunderstanding because he can't go to her to solve his problem of needing blood. The heroine, Esme, sees him drinking from another woman, which I think is such a trope. Like Such a trope. And I think in a traditional romance novel, not a Victorian steampunk, this would be more equitable to, like, see some dancing with someone else. Exactly. Like, it's not actually making out with. It's not actually having sex with. It's not actually, like, demonstrating romantic interest. But it's socially understood to mean something and so she naturally assumes that there's something that's there that's not well and in this case too like it's a prostitute in an alley so it's not like (laughs) it's not like a good friend of hers you know but they're not like making out or having sex he's feeding correct although as we have talked about many a time in in many vampire novels sex is equivalent to giving blood or 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 not giving blood but stick the, the the blood transaction yeah. is is in some way sexualized and that's true but at the same time as we've talked about many times i'm not into blood mm-hmm. so i find it very easy to differentiate the two. Oh yeah no 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 it's fine with me i'm just saying it, it, i agree with you that dancing is the appropriate equivalent because dancing is also slightly simulation right yeah mm-hmm. yeah and then i think the last trope we want to point out before we get into the meat of the story is that at the there the our heroine gets kidnapped by a villain who we never we didn't think would be able to do it or the hero didn't think well the hero didn't yeah yeah so uh, there's definitely Fewer tropes than I think we usually see, and especially holiday-themed novellas, which are mm-hmm. usually trope factories, largely because this doesn't adhere to the Christmas novella formula. Yeah. Because it's not really Christmas novella. <laughs> <laughs> so, after we read the first book, I actually was pretty excited to read about this couple, because Rip did not want to be a vampire. He didn't want to get vamped. He only did it because he was going to bleed out and die. And because they said, well, what would Esme do if you died? So it was implied in the first book that this is like his second lease on life. He's going to immediately seek out Esme and, you know, take take the next step with her. And so I was like totally ready to read a 
sexy book where he comes back and decides to woo her or something. Well, you were ready for this basically to be the near-death experience, second least on life love story. Exactly. And I that's not what this was. Nope. So I, I will say I was left a little bit wanting. So both of them are really reluctant to talk about their feelings in a meaningful way her because she doesn't want to put pressure on a newly turned vampire and him because he thinks she's too good for him and he's afraid of killer if he drinks to her i don't know there are reasons for not talking to each other are too thin for me frankly well it's it falls into the trope of and got how i can't believe we didn't mention this they've been friends forever they're but very, they've been in love close. with each other the whole time. It's not yes. like a sudden change in feelings. No. They, they've been friends forever. They've been in love forever. But they don't want to take this step because they don't want to ruin what they have for something that might not work out. Yeah. And, I mean, so this is the quintessential friends to lovers, actually. The quintessential friends to lovers trope. Which I don't think this book is a friends to lovers, which is probably why it didn't hit us as being the trope. But Well, you know uh, what? I, I also, I associate friends to lovers to there being a point in their history where they were truly just friends. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't get the impression that was the case here. That, like, the entire time they've known each other, they both wanted more. Right. But I, I think it falls into that trope of, and that's why they don't talk, because they're afraid that if they talk about it, it's going to ruin what they have, and what they have right now is better than nothing. I'm not saying it's not, like, on some level understandable. I'm just saying I wanted them to be talking about it, especially in the context of, like, this book is ultimately, I mean, it's about their love story, but the plot is this murderous rampage tearing through the underworld because there's a new villain basically trying to challenge the man they're loyal to for control, and Rip's lack of desire to talk about his feelings leads to him not wanting to talk about the threat he's discovered. Yep. Yep. And all of that felt very disingenuous. Yeah, that that really bugged me. I was really actually So so Rip is keeping he's discovered this new threat, right, mm-hmm. on the streets. He's keeping it a secret from his boss, Blade. He's keeping his name from Blade, first of all, because he doesn't want to talk to Esme for some reason, but also because Blade is in the throes of his, the beginning of his romance. He's in the honeymoon phase with his new wife. And Blade doesn't want to ruin his honeymoon. Right? So basically he's like, oh, he's been working so hard and he's been friendless for so long. I can handle this. Let's just leave him, hang out with Anoria. Even if he decided not to tell Blade, like, tell Will, tell... Tell someone. Tin Man, tell, like, right, like, there's a difference between I don't want to bug Blade and I'm going to keep this to myself. Yeah. And I, I mean, I thought it was pretty flimsy, to be honest. So, you know. The thing that bothered me the most in this book Mm -hmm. is this is also a huge trope. One of the things that reflects the depth and truth of her feelings is the fact that she's the only person who uses his real name. Mm-hmm. But yep. when they have a falling out in the text, she goes back to his nickname. Yeah. But in her internal monologue, she uses them interchangeably. 
Yeah. It really bugged me because such, and it wouldn't have bothered me if she just like switched back and forth and thought of him as both. Yeah. If such a big deal hadn't been made in the text about how she really only thinks of him as John. Right. And using Rip was a conscious choice to put him in his place. Exactly. So then having her internal monologue just vacillate willy nilly. Yeah. Was like very jarring. Yes, I agree. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have bothered me if the text hadn't made a big deal of it. Yeah. So I don't think we're going to get in, honestly, to the plot very much, just because it, it doesn't have much to do with a love story. Uh, and I think it could be, it could be spoiled. There, there is a mystery, and I, I thought it was handled pretty well, actually. I kind of enjoyed how the mystery played out. Um, because he does, he finds a clue and all this stuff, and then... Yeah, anyway, I liked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think Beckman Master does a good job with her plotting. You know, not not a bad job. Um, because, so I, I don't think we need to get into it. I don't know, unless you want to talk about it. No, I think knowing that there is a mystery having to do with a challenge to the power structure in the underworld, and that that mystery ultimately results in her being kidnapped. That's kind of the degree to which the mystery and the love story intersect. Yeah, that's the thing. So, and, and maybe that's, was part of the issue for me is that it, it really wasn't, didn't feel like a, a huge romance novella because in a romance novella, there's really not much plot. The plot is how do we get these two people together? I want to see them have sex. And then how do they end up together? Yeah. And, and this, the, the mystery plot, which um, Riff is out investigating and then the love story with Esme, they're very separate. They're on two different plot tracks until the very end where she gets kidnapped. Right. And that's really it. Yeah, I, I don't quite... Beck McMaster, in her novels, shoves in everything but the Kajitin. And so I do think it's kind of hard to quantify them in some ways, because mm-hmm. she fleshes out so many different angles that you don't really read what her priority is. Right. I think that really stands out as a flaw here in a novella. Yeah. You, either I'm reading because I want to read a little mystery, or I'm reading because I want to read a little love story... I don't know which this was, to be honest with you. Like, if somebody yeah. asked me if this was more love story or more, like, quick mystery in the universe, I don't know what I'd say. I don't know. I mean, it's both. It's equal. It's equally both, which means that it's it doesn't focus on one or the other. Exactly. And that's when you are reading it because you're like, oh, a cute little Christmas develop between two main characters. Right. <laughs> you're like, oh, wait, there's a slasher gang that drains people's blood. Oh. Okay. And it's, like, torturing women and children. Great. Cool. Which brings us to offensiveness. Yeah. So it's pretty violent. I mean, Beckman Master's books are, are relatively violent because there's lots of, you know, vampires and bloodletting and and werewolves and prize fighting and stuff like that. And in this one, there's the slasher gang that I talked about. Yeah, I mean, on the whole, it's such a short novel that I don't necessarily know that much offended me. Mm-hmm. I would say two things that really stuck out to me. One, his mother was beaten to death by her pimp. Mm-hmm. He reflects on that a lot. That's obviously very triggering and traumatizing. So, like, mm-hmm. be forewarned that that's in the text. And there's a lot of baby craziness. Yeah. And he's like, look, if you're not going to put a baby in me, I don't, I've got a limited time. i got to find someone else to put a baby in me. Right, and as we will all, any of our regular listeners know, that's not my thing. Yeah. 
it makes me very uncomfortable, and I really didn't think this book that was already a novella needed that added conflict of... It basically felt like an effortless way to put a time frame mm-hmm. on them having to figure out their interpersonal drama that just did not feel very organic. Yeah. And then the final thing that that was a little annoying to me, because so violence can get to me. I think what really gets to me is when it's really gratuitous and there's no real reason for it. And here, um, one of the things that makes the slasher gang so horrible is that they have to drain your blood while you're alive because otherwise the vampires won't drink it. But Right, so they're, they're draining the blood for vampire food. Right. And vampires are picky, apparently. Apparently. But I'm also like, well, that doesn't... I, blood, once it comes out of your body, whether you're alive or you're dead, it, it, it's the same, you know? I mean, that's one of those things you just gotta let go if you're reading I, I, vampire I, fiction, Meg. <laughs> it's universal. From- like, no, I know, but, like, he's, he's, he's not gonna sell the blood within half an hour of draining it from the body. Doesn't matter. They can taste whether the person was alive when it was drained. Does that make sense? No, it does not. Do you just have to get over that? Yes, you do. Maybe I do, but it just, I guess for me, it wasn't good enough of a reason for all the violence and torture. I need a better reason. If I'm going to read a violent, you know, bloodletting, I need there to be a good reason. There's just never going to be. I mean, maybe that's the issue. Okay, what's the shining light of this book, Lane? It's very sick. This book is real sexy. This book is really sexy. We already talked about the the, the sexy bathhouse. Sort of. We didn't really get into it, so I think it warrants further communication. Okay, let's let's talk about it a little more then. Um, like many inhabitants of the underworld, cleanliness is very important to these people. I think it's actually more important to people who live in the underworld than people who live in regular society, because. The rest of the world that they have to interact with is just so dirty and gross. They have to get clean all the time. Or they have to tell each other that they need showers all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this this also played a part in the first book. Blade. So Blade has got his own personal bathroom. Mm-hmm. Like, ba- like jacuzzi bath. Like really nice bathroom in, inside the house. But then there's an outdoor. It seems like sauna slash bathhouse i mean I, I want one at my house it's just it's for communal use right and then they get it just for them yeah so he comes back from a stressful day after they've been at odds with one another and he's been dealing with this slasher gang and she tells him he's reefs and he goes and she decides to follow him and like find out what's wrong and she ends up, you know, giving him a massage and helping him bathe. And it's all very sensual. It's very sexy. Very sexy. And yeah. then there's the sex cabin in the city. Yeah. Which is also very sexy. And there's a makeout against a wall. Which, for some reason in the last couple of months, the, like, people caving after years to one desperate moment has been really doing it for me. And this book absolutely has that. This book, this, look, this book is very sexy. Again, for a novella that has two separate storylines going on. Um, it's also got, like, two and a half 
very detailed sex scenes. Thumbs up. Yes. One slight word of warning, there is some bloodletting during some of the sex. <laughs> it's less than it was during the first book in the series, though. Mm-hmm. That's all. Like, if you want it for comparison, it exists here, but it's not quite the same explicit tie between feeding and sex yeah. all the time that it is in some vampire books. It's it's really more of a, because it's not always Whenever they, it's not like every time they have sex, they also have to share blood or not. They don't share blood. She gives him, he feeds on her. Uh, But it's also, it's like, it's like a deepening of the intimacy, right? She's like, okay, now you can get my blood. It's not great. And I don't like it, but it bothered me less here than it did in the first book of the series. I I agree. Um, So let's, let's candy cane rate this. I, okay, I guess this is not a candy cane rating because I, I can't really judge candy canes, let's be honest. I, I just don't have the, I don't have the, the means of comparison. But I can say that I liked the world building and I liked the way Christmas was used in this book. I actually really enjoyed it a lot because they explained that um, the Blue Bloods were excommunicated by the church, basically. So the church was like, you guys are demons. Uh, and so the blue bloods re- uh, retaliated by saying, okay, fine, you don't believe in us, we don't believe in you, and banning all religious services. And so Christmas, they don't go to church necessarily, but celebrating Christmas has become sort of a symbol of the humanist resistance, which I kind of really liked. I don't get the feeling that Beckman Master is particularly religious, and the way they celebrated Christmas was not particularly religious. I, I have to say that I kind of enjoyed the fact that they were like, yeah, let's celebrate. Stick it to the man. <laughs> See, I actually viewed it opposite mm-hmm. in a way that because Beckman Master chose to make it about a symbol of resistance after Christianity had been outlawed, I was reading it more like a narrative of Christian persecution with Christians like coming through and their faith being the one thing they couldn't crush. Yeah. And, like, I'm not interested in that narrative. I am all about Christmas as, like, a commercialized holiday. Right. And not a religious one. And so, for me, this kind of leaned into the religious side more than I was comfortable with. Yes. I mean, that's that's fair. I, I think I just liked the fact that she thought about it and had a way to integrate it. So I liked it. No, it was definitely a cool facts within this world that I've become really attached to and like mm-hmm. understanding how that works but it made it less Christmas novella for me yeah I wanted candy canes and baking ginger snaps and decorating the tree together and like here we go a wassailing and what I got was this one Christmas dinner being like the one time people weren't being drained to death and the small amount of Christmas decor that existed was explicitly some sort of like resistance against religion being outlawed which like i'm not here for that but so for me it's like two three candy canes at least there was a tree and a meal <laughs> there was a tree and a meal yeah so and like two, three candy canes at a time so esme cooked the whole meal because she's a housekeeper but other people cleaned it up for her which i also really liked like that's also my fantasy is please clean all my house for me all the time I would well, love they that. did everything. They kicked yeah. her out of the kitchen. She they didn't did put it. work clean. 
Oh, well, she had prepared it. Like, she did the, the but, like, they cooked the bird and did the yeah. whole thing, and she was very uncomfortable, but I dug it. I, I, I really liked that, actually. I mean, so, all in all, I'd say if you're enjoying the Beckman Master series or if you've enjoyed any other books for her, Tarnished Night is absolutely worth reading as a addition to that world. Yes. If you are just looking for a feel-good Christmas Christmas novella with no context, wouldn't start there. Mm-mm. I would not start with this one. If you have never uh, read anything in the London steampunk world um, and you're looking for a really fun Christmas in an alternate universe, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I wouldn't recommend starting with this one. Yeah. So as always, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, we'd love it if you would rate, review, subscribe, and check us out on Instagram.